worship class at Calvary Bible School. Um, shows a video of a Pentecostal church service, and I'm just going to play it for you since I feel like it to help you hear the worship, the mood of worship this evening. Uh, it's called Crazy. The title of the video is Crazy White People Church, which is awfully fitting. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it or not. Tell when the spirit hits, you can you can hear the moment. you're all looking for a church to go to. I think we'll get started. Welcome. Um, I'm excited to talk about this uh, topic tonight, uh, building on where we left off last time. And so just for a brief recap. So last time we talked about, we were talking about the image of God. So we talked about uh, what it means to be made in his image. And then we talked about the possibility of doing community in his image, where so it's just me presenting the image of God. It's we uh, together um, as images of God living that in a community setting. And what I want to talk about tonight is sharing his image. What, what, I, what I mean by that is, well, we'll get to that in a second, but talking about it more on the individual level of what life might look like around me if I responded properly to the situations that I find myself in. So talking a lot about... Um, I guess personal responsibility tonight, if that's quite the right way of thinking about it. And I want to get, I'm going to get quite practical as far as what our responses might look like, how they tend to look like now, and what they could and possibly should look like if we could do things uh, in a right way. So if you feel like I'm pointing fingers at you tonight, you should feel otherwise. I'm just uh, 
Um, anyway, so a bit, of, a bit of review. We've been talking about gardens and boundaries, how that God has created each one of us with a garden. And this is uh, just going over a few points from last time. Uh, your garden is sacred, even if, it is, even if it has been violated by you or others in some way. So what you have today, yourself, whatever it is that, that God has created you with, and uh, your garden, so to speak, is uh, important, is sacred, and is valuable, regardless of what has happened up to this point. And it should be treated as such by you and by those around you. Uh, we talked about relationships and community need healthy boundaries. The responsibility to maintain healthy boundaries starts with the individuals. We talked about this a little bit at the end of our last class period, how that uh, I need to take proper responsibility for my garden and my boundaries. I don't control others or make them responsible for my boundaries. That's my responsibility, not someone else's. And then I talked some about uh, a teaching from Frank Reed about parent, adult, and child, how that we all have the ability to respond as parent, adult, or child. Placating and control are not adult responses to uh, conflict. And when we live and when we respond and live as adults, we invite those around us to do the same. That's where we get to the idea of sharing his image. In other words, if I'm properly situated and oriented, that affects the people around me. Not because I'm, you know, preaching at them necessarily, but because by my by the way I live my life and treat and respect myself, it calls them, calls people around me to do the same for themselves. Okay, so how does that happen? How does a right view of myself affect those around me? So let's look practically now. Not view as a place of intense, rela intense uh, relationships. <clears throat> so say something, say somebody says something to you that you don't appreciate. You know what that feels like? I'm guessing most of you do. When somebody says something you don't appreciate, how are you going to respond when you're approached with something you don't like? Is it important how the person comes to us? Well, it depends on how you look at it, doesn't it? You could say no because the responsibility is all mine. On the other hand, if you're the one that's going to go talk to somebody, does how you talk to them matter? Yes, because that's your responsibility, right? And so you could say it both ways. You could say, no, it doesn't matter, or yes, it does. And I think one thing, I'm just going to slip this in here uh, at the beginning, even though leader might do better, but I, I want to make sure I say it so I don't forget it. Um, when you go to talk to somebody, or when you're in a relationship, or you're trying to figure something out, or you're having conflict, some of us are going to have a hard time saying the truth. Some of us are going to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but do it so ineffectively that it does no good. We just, bleh, you know, out it comes, and the responsibility is completely on the hearer to, uh, to take it the right way and to apply it properly. So if you think about it like this, when we're talking with someone in conflict or when we're dealing with something in a relationship, you want to say the truth in the way that is most likely to cause the other person to respond properly. So when you're not backing away from what needs to be said, you're just being wise about what needs to be said. 
was, we might get to that again a little bit later, but uh, okay, so back to our example here. Somebody says something to you that you don't appreciate. So maybe it's a, uh, oh, what might it be here at Mountain View Nursing Telephone? Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're late for something too much and the dean talks to you or friends talk to you. Um, or maybe you have a bad attitude or maybe you have an obvious character flaw that you came with that nobody loved you enough to tell you about before you got here. Uh, you name it. I had numerous experiences like that when I was here, when people had to sit me down and uh, <coughs> tell me CPR of my ways. And she was really nice about it, she really was. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, okay, somebody comes and talks to you. Maybe they have an obvious wrong attitude. Because you can kind of smell that, you know, when, when you're, especially when you're fighting with someone, like when you have, like, when you normally have contention with someone and uh, something pops up and they just, they get you, like it's a nice dig. And it hurts because it's actually kind of true. But they obviously have a bad attitude about it. That's one way they can talk to you. Or maybe their words are okay, but you don't feel respected by how they talk to you. Which also matters, right? Because we catch far more of how things are said and the way the person comes across than the actual words. I don't have the percentages off the top of my head, but it's pretty significant. Or uh, you could say maybe, maybe someone looking on would say that the other person did everything as good as possible, but you still feel resentful and don't like it. Okay, how do you respond? Here's how we tend to respond. We tend to respond by fight or flight. So the, uh, we've been talking about control and placating. Here's one way we could respond. We control and get angry. You're talking to me, I have a few things to say to you. That is called, uh, well, what we could do that is we put up more walls, get defensive, or we can attack the other person's character. Now this is called ad hominem, which is a Latin phrase. Basically it means that uh, I shift the, the, uh, the pressure off myself by irrelevantly attacking a part of your character that makes you look bad so that you don't have the ability to talk to me anymore. And I've seen this, and I've probably done it, actually, a time or two, where uh, maybe there's truth in what they're saying, but they don't deserve to tell me that, so I'm going to write off everything that they just said. It's a great way of, uh, of uh, you know, kind of taking the responsibility away from yourself. Another way we can do this is we can weaponize the truth by going on the offensive, attacking the other person, in order to protect myself. Now I wanna, well, I'll leave that for a minute. The other thing we can do is we can go silent and defiantly refuse to engage. That is called passive aggression. And uh, <laughs> you ever hear somebody say, fine, if that's how you wanna be, I just won't talk to you anymore. That's passive aggressive. Now sometimes maybe that attitude can be appropriate, I'm not completely writing it off. But what we're doing is we are punishing the other person by withdrawing. And uh, maybe it looks good, but we're still fighting. Or the other thing we could do is we can placate and withdraw. So basically, rather than putting the focus on the other person, I put all the focus on myself. Take all the blame and responsibility in unhealthy and unproductive ways. If there's blame and responsibility that you, and responsibility that's yours, you need to accept it. That's called being mature. 
if you take all of it on yourself and it's not yours, it's not helpful, is it? Because it's not the truth. All right. We tend to feel guilty, take responsibility that isn't ours, retreat from conflict instead of engaging through healthy and productive dialogue. And the outward response is one of fear, placating, as opposed to anger or control. So how do you think your relationships are going to go if these are your defaults? Most of us do both of these things. And that's something I saw uh, very clearly myself when I was working sales in uh, construction because I was I had a number of customers, contractors that I worked with, and uh, I've also been working within the, my church community um, as a member of the church and as a minister for a number of years. And I found out very quickly that I was my go-to response when there was contention in the church was to fight back because they were the people that I knew well. And my go-to response when I was dealing in the business world was to placate because I was afraid of those people. It's interesting because I had the exact opposite response based on how well I knew the person and whether or not I was familiar with them and needed to have continuing relationships with them in some ways. So we probably all have the ability to do both of these things. Um, but what happens if you always revert to one or the other? I had a contractor that uh, in the fall of, it was late summer of 2020. So for those of you that aren't aware of the uh, what happened during the COVID pandemic, um, the supply chain, especially in the construction industry, was really, really limited. So we sold Provia doors. Our, week, our lead time, in other words, from the time we got the order into the time that door ended up at our warehouse, went from about two weeks to anywhere from four to six months. And we didn't know, and they didn't know, when those doors were going to show up. Well, in August, I got a call from a potential customer. He had gotten our name through uh, another construction friend of his. He was a tile contractor. And he says, hey, I'm putting up a house. I'd like you guys to give me some quotes on windows and doors. So I went out to his job site. They were framing the house at that point. This is August. And he said, yeah, we had closing on our other house. We need to be out of it by Thanksgiving. So in a good day, that was a really high, that was really fast. In COVID, that was impossible. Needless to say, he installed his doors the week before he moved into his house. The house was drywalled, trimmed, carpeted, everything. And he had plywood over his door openings because the doors weren't there yet. The very first day that I was with him on the job, so this guy's maybe 45, I don't know. And he didn't know me from Adam. We're just walking around the job site. And one of his uh, workers was trying to open the side door of one of the trucks and the, the latch was stuck. And the it was and the, the worker was a guy that was probably 45 as well. It wasn't just a young kid. And he said something about this door won't opening and the contractor just cut loose like, effing this, you messed that effing door, blah, 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 just right in front of me, just cussed the guy out of the floor. And uh, the, the, the worker didn't bat an eye. He was just like, well, it was like this one I got here. You know what I'm saying? And oh, okay, all right. But that was what it was like to deal with this contractor. He, I got chewed out by him. I got, I don't know if I got cussed at by him or not, but he would just fly off the handle at any given problem. And um, he was definitely the controlling 
an angry response thing. Now what's funny is that karma did strike him because when our uh, delivery man delivered a load of stone, which our delivery guy, Eric, so he's, he's like, um, he's about as tall as I am. He's probably 350 or 400 pounds, big tattoos all over his arm, nice big beard, drives a Harley. He's a really, really great guy. Um, very gentle and soft-spoken, and I mean that. But um, he goes out to the job site, and he's on, and uh, he pulls his truck up, and Mike, the contractor, comes out with his skid loader to unload the stone. And he sticks the forks of the skid loader up, puts it into the skid of stone, and these skids weigh anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 pounds, picks up the skid, backs up, and the forklift, and the, and the, uh, the skid loader goes, mm, dunk, and runs out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> if there's anybody that deserved to have that happen to him, it was probably Mike. I was not there to witness it, but I, I heard the response was impressive. <laughs> anyway, so what happens when we, what happens when we normally revert to one of these two options in our relationships, either control or placate, take your pick. Both breed a lack of trust that leads to resentment and division. Both are defensive behaviors. Fighting or, or running away are defensive. Why? It's because I'm trying to take the spotlight off of me and get out of the situation. So neither one is good. They're defensive behaviors designed to protect me at the expense of us, at the expense of community. So the scriptures have a lot to teach us about relationships. I love looking at Proverbs, especially in uh, reading about relationships. This is a verse that has stuck out to me for years now. I think I have the, I think it's 2014, the date I have written beside this verse in my Bible. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So, so shalt thou find that. Yeah. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. That's really interesting. Because most of us in our lives and in our relationships are going to overemphasize one or the other. So we have mercy. Mercy and truth. What happens when we overemphasize truth? We weaponize it. Because truth can be a hammer to force you to do what I want, to think how I think, to, uh, yeah, you name it. What about mercy? So we can weaponize the truth or we can hide behind mercy. We can say, well, I'm just going to be merciful and not say anything. Or I'm going to be truthful and say everything. And the problem is when we overemphasize them, they become ineffective. Because the scripture says, don't let either one of them forsake you. And if you can rightly handle mercy and truth, Proverbs says we will find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and our fellow man. So how do we manage mercy and truth as God intends for us to? So Virginia Satire was a uh, family therapist. She was back in the 1900s, somewhere around 1912 to 19, I want to say 88, something like that. But she has, uh, she used the word congruent to describe healthy conflict. So congruent means to 
be in agreement or harmony. So if you have congruent objects, any mathematicians? Alistair, what's congruent mean in geometry? Congruent mean in geometry. No, if you have two lines that are congruent, it means they're parallel to each other. If you have two triangles that are congruent, they're the same, exactly the same as each other. Mr. So these triangles are relatively congruent. In other words, they're the same shape. Now, if I turn one of the triangles, you know, 20 degrees to the right, they're no longer congruent because they're not exactly the same. They're sitting on the page the same way. That's what it means to have a congruent response. And what she means by congruent is that you have three, uh, three parts to every conflict, to every, uh, to every conversation. You have, I have me, I have the other person, and I have the context. So congruent conflict means that I hold those three things equally. I understand where I'm at, I understand where the other person's at, and I'm looking at the, con the, uh, the context of the situation based, or what we can say that is, we can say that is the, uh, the context is the facts of the situation outside of my biases and emotions. I find it so interesting. Have you ever uh, been in a conversation and somebody said something that made the other person feel badly? And then when that person went and told somebody else, and you also heard them talking about it, they described, by, they described the encounter by how it made them feel, not by how it sounded in real life. Does that make sense? I, I heard my boss do this all the time, crack me up. Um, because I was like, okay, that's not what he said. Yes, he's, that's what you think it meant, but that's not what he actually said. Anyway, because we tend to overemphasize things or prove our points. All right, so congruent conflict means I hold context myself and the other person equally. All right, so Janelle Glick has, has built this uh, a bit and she calls it self, other, and context responses to conflict. So we can placate, which is flight mode, and I lose sense of who when I placate. I lose sense of myself. All the focus is on the other person. Blaming uh, in flight mode, and I lose sense of the other person, or I can be super reasonable. This is also flight mode because I'm avoiding conflict. I lose sense of myself. I lose sense of how the other person is doing, and I focus only on the context of the situation or I can distract, which is also flight mode. I lose awareness of everything, self, other, and context, and I distract or withdraw from the situation in order to avoid it. And now to help you understand maybe a little more what that looks like, we're going to talk about some examples. So this is, this is the example she uses in her workbook, and then I want to uh, go through a couple of practical examples, more practical examples. Okay, so the situation is this. A mother whose husband often tells her when he arrives home from work, you are so irresponsible, you are late getting supper ready every night. I make plans to do things and they always get ruined. Somebody tells you that. What's a blaming response from the wife? Want to take a stab at it? Blaming response. You never tell me when you'll be home. Do you want your food to be cold? Blaming. Placating. I know I'm a terrible wife and mother. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Placating. 
complicating, all right? What about super reasonable? You need to understand that life is not always predictable. True? Yeah. Helpful? Maybe. Distracting. Oh no, my meatloaf is burning. <laughs> and, or she also adds in, physically withdrawing, leaves the room in silence. Okay, so, placating, blaming, super reasonable, and distracting. What is a congruent response? Okay, so in a congruent response, we want to hold these three things in context. What's the truth? Which in this situation might be to suffer obviously. And why? And is some of that my fault? Uh, so if you look at the context, I have to think about how I'm feeling and doing and how um, how what's going on in my world is affecting what my husband is seeing in this situation. And I also want to be uh, holding what the other person thinks well. So what might a response like that look like? I know you were hungry when you come home. So you're validating the need of the other person. I've been having a hard time knowing when you'll be home. Notice, I'm acknowledging the problem. I'm saying, from my perspective, why the problem exists. Is there a time that would be consistent with your schedule? I can understand that you get frustrated when supper is late. And what you're doing is you're taking an irresponsible comment by the husband, in this case, and you're responding to it in a way that gives the most possible chance for a successful outcome of the conversation. Because here's what happens. Yeah, let's say um, you should never fight to win. You should fight to have winners. What I mean by that is this. So let's say the wife, um, in this case, lashes out against the husband, puts him in his place, tells him that if he would only come come home from work at a, at a uh, reasonable time every day, she could have his blankety-blank food ready for him and he tucks his tail between his legs and shuts up. She won, right? And now she gets to look at the loser. Really, that's what happens. If you fight to win, you get to live with the loser. And that's not the best outcome for you, that's not the best outcome for the other person. What you want to do is fight in such a way, and I mean that word fight in the most appropriate sense that you can imagine. Um, you want to fight in such a way that you and the other person get to move forward as better people. Because that's really what you're there for. Let's go on to, uh, well, let's, let's look at the congruent response thing just a little bit more here. Congruent means to hold each part equally. In other words, how do I feel? Whatever, whatever, whatever the catalyst was that started the conflict, a congruent response might ask these questions. How do I feel? Is there truth in what they are telling me? And how can I respond and acknowledge the other person in a way that is best for both of us moving forward? So, here's another example for you. An employee comes to their supervisor and says they're having a hard time getting everything done. They ask for either more help or more time to work. Some of you might have done this, okay? How is the supervisor supposed to respond? All right, blaming. Everyone else in that position has done it, and you should be able to do it too. Placating. This is my fault. I just need to give you as much time as you think you need. 
done. Distracting. You're doing a great job. Just keep up the good work. Super reasonable. The work needs to get done. I'll just find someone else who can do it better than you. Are you going to walk away as an employee? Or are you going to walk away satisfied with those answers? No, because none of them actually fix the problem. You might, if you're a person that responds to pressure by pouring on the performance, you might say, all right, I just need to buckle down and get this done, and I'm going to outperform my boss's expectations. And then your quality goes down, and you run yourself ragged, and you're not happy. If your boss placates and just says it's all his fault, it doesn't help you. Why not? Because the work's still not going to be done. If he says you're doing a great job, actually, that's not really helpful. Why not? Because he's not acknowledging the problem. So how could a boss respond to that situation? I see you're feeling overwhelmed with everything that needs to be done. That's what he's doing. He's acknowledging the problem. And if you want to, uh, a little bit of advice for handling conflict well. Well, we're going to get to that a little later. I see you're feeling overwhelmed with everything that needs to be done. So focusing on the other person. We've been looking for more help, but I'm having trouble finding good employees. What he's doing is acknowledging his, his difficulty and the context. We do need more help. What you're seeing is actually a problem that I've been working on, but I can't get there. How can we work this out? I see you're feeling overwhelmed with everything that needs to be done. We've been looking for more help, but I'm having trouble finding good employees. How can we work this out? Feel heard? Another situation. So this is a real one. So uh, I think this was last fall. Kai and uh, <laughs> Kai and some of the other staff kids. We are. We're not exactly. I and some of the other staff are not speaking nicely to each other. And so as parents, my wife and I saw this, and we wanted to address the situation with Kai. Now there's not necessarily conflict going on between Kai and us, but you see something that needs to be addressed to the other person. What is the best way to go about, or what is the way to go about addressing the problem that is most likely to bring about a good solution for Kai, for us as parents, and for the kids he's playing with. Listen to this, blaming them. You have a hard time getting along with people. Just be kind all the time and get over it. Play Katie. We don't talk to Kai at all. I should be there for him more. If I would be a better parent, this sort of thing wouldn't happen. Distracting. Go to Kai and say, just go play somewhere else and ignore the girls, and ignore the girls for a while. Or we could respond super reasonably. Would you like it if they did that to you? The Bible says we should always treat others the way we want to be treated. That's all true, right? But it's not in the proper context. Try this. I see it hurts when the girls are mean to you, and I understand why it makes you feel being, like being mean as well. So that is in response to, they approached him about it, and he said, you do the kid thing. Either some form of, they started it, or, they were being mean to me. 
response to that, I see it hurts when the girls are mean to you, and I understand why it makes you feel like being mean as well. It's hard for me to see you treat people that way. So I'm acknowledging him. We're acknowledging what it feels like for us as parents to see our son do this. And it doesn't honor God when we respond in ways that are wrong. So we're pointing him to a context that's greater than what I want or what his friends are doing. It's what God wants for us. Okay, I see it hurts when the girls are mean to you, and I understand why it makes you feel like being mean as well. It's hard for me to see you treat people that way, and it doesn't honor God when we respond in ways that are wrong. What do you think we can do to you all in a better relationship? Congruent responses. Here's what's happening. Congruent responses honor what is sacred. So if I have a right view of myself, that means that I know that my guard is sacred. And I respect it as such. Because my guard is sacred, yours is too. And when we're dealing with conflict in a relationship like this, me winning and you losing is a violation of what's sacred. Because God created them just like he created me. And we redeem each other by both walking toward the way of truth. What does that mean? It means that if I want to have a congruent response, and I look at the context, regardless of how they came to me, if there's truth there, that is truth that belongs to God and I So if there's areas for me to grow in, I need to swallow my pride and say, you know what? You're right. Now, it means that I don't take responsibility for things that I'm not doing, for things that I'm doing that aren't wrong. But uh, the process of the human response takes both of us in the right direction. All right. Any questions? stands in the way of, of doing this well? So these are just examples, and I know that every situation is different. And I think we're going to be honest with ourselves, it's hard. It doesn't matter how well people approach us, or deal with us, or walk in relationship with us, it can be hard to acknowledge that I did something wrong, or on the flip side, that someone else is approaching me in a wrong way, and it's hurting our relationship. Especially, especially hard when we feel impacted or ashamed. So what gets in our way? First of the hindrances to sharing his image in our responses. One, I'm in too much pain to consider the emotions and pain of those around me. And I can tell you this from personal experience because um, a pretty good barometer of how I'm doing emotionally is how I respond to other people who are not doing well. I've just noticed that in my life. If I don't have much room for someone else who is struggling, it's probably because I'm not doing so great myself. And that's one of the things that stands in the way of us being able to see things from the other person's perspective. I was involved in something recently where to me it was just so crystal clear that if both sides would just open their eyes a little bit and acknowledge how the other person was doing, this conflict would be over. But there was no reason to do that. And it was directly related to the fact that they were in so much pain 
themselves that this is a situation not not your not to be with. They were in so much pain themselves that they simply did not have the ability to acknowledge how they were supposed to do it. So that's one reason we struggle to uh, respond well because of the pain that we're experiencing ourselves. What else? Um, well, I've had years of practice controlling or placating or distracting or running, and practice makes perfect. And when we have decades of habits in place, it's really hard to change. It is. Um, I know for myself, uh, one of the biggest hindrances probably to me responding well in situations is because I tend to hold myself to a really high standard and I don't have grace for myself when I fall, when I don't do well, and I feel a lot of shame when I come to the realization that I messed up. And so rather than feel shame, it's easier just to get mad and cover that up or push it away. Bad habits are hard to break, especially when we're stressed. What else stands in our way? Telling the truth to myself and others feels too vulnerable and painful to manage. Because it can be really hard to tell someone the truth. In other words, if we're attacked, and uh, what I want to do is respond well and help the other person uh, understand maybe how I'm feeling, that can be difficult because I don't want to tell them something that's going to be hard for them to hear. Again, placating or taking responsibility for someone else's, someone else's response, uh, response to the situation. Think about this, okay, mercy and truth, <coughs> you know that mercy and truth forsake you. Truth mixed with mercy. And that's really, that's God's truth. That's God's way of coming across with truth and mercy. Truth mixed with mercy is not a hammer. It's an invitation. And I think it's helpful to think about it that way. When God brings truth into our lives, he's not looking to, uh, to strike us down, to shame us, to punish us, or to make us feel guilty. He's revealing that because he's inviting us to freedom. And that's why he's bringing that truth, because God's truth to his people comes mixed with mercy. When you look at Jesus coming to earth, you have God showing up and God bringing redemption. That's why he came. And when God's truth shows up, it's there to bring redemption. Uh, here's something else that goes along with that. You also need to respond Because some people do well with doing this with other people, and not so well with taking it easy, taking deep inside of their response. But not so well with responding well to their own failures and struggles. So why is it so hard to do these things in community? What are some of the things, some things, some other things that stand in our way? Patrick, Patrick Lencioni wrote a book called Five Dysfunctions of the Team, in which he lays out uh, five things that uh, cause us and our relationships to break down. And uh, the way this looks, by the way, is a pyramid. Um, I'm going to try to draw it out right now. But basically, what Lencioni says is that absence of trust leads to fear of conflict, which leads to a lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, and inattention to results. And usually when you find breakdown in relationships, somewhere way back at the beginning, there was a loss of trust. And that loss of trust has been eating away foundation of the relationship. Uh, listen to someone, let's see what he says here. 
Uh, he's talking in the context of business. The first dysfunction is absence of trust among team members. Essentially, this stems from their unwillingness to be vulnerable within the group. Team members who are not genuinely open with one another about their mistakes and weaknesses make it impossible to build a foundation for trust. This failure to build trust is damaging because it sets the tone for the second dysfunction, fear of conflict. Teams that lack trust are incapable of engaging in unfiltered and passionate debate of ideas. Instead, they resort to veiled discussions and guarded comments. A lack of healthy conflict is a problem because it ensures the third dysfunction, lack of commitment. Without having aired their opinions in the course of passionate and open debate, team members rarely, if ever, buy any committed decisions, though they may feign agreement during meetings. Because of this lack of real commitment and buy-in, team members develop an avoidance of accountability, the fourth dysfunction. Without committing to a clear plan of action, even the most focused and driven people often, he often hesitate to call their peers on a call their peers on actions and behaviors that are counterproductive to the good of the team. Failure to hold one another accountable creates an environment where the fifth dysfunction can thrive in attention to results. Occurs when team members put their individual needs, such as ego, career development, or recognition, or even the needs of their divisions, above the collective goals of the team. Another way to understand this model is to take the opposite approach, a positive one, and imagine how members of truly cohesive teams behave. They trust one another. They engage in unfiltered conflict around ideas. And I think that's important because they're not arguing about the value of each person. They're discussing ideas because they want to find the best way forward. They commit to decisions and plans of action. They hold one another accountable for delivering against those plans. And they focus on the achievement of collective, not individual, results. How can we build trust? when we've been hurt. So trust is at the basis of all of this, and I truly believe that it is. If it is not safe for you in your church or in your brother's meetings or in your community or in your team or whatever it is to say how you feel, if it's not safe for you to be honest, you're going to have problems. Because you're not going to be able to be vulnerable. Relational conflict can be opportunity to build trust. How do we do that? Proverbs 13, James 3. Proverbs 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. How do you go into conflict? So, uh, back when I was doing uh, some training with Arthur Nisley about working with sexual addiction, one of the things that was talked about in our training was how to, uh, how to work through disclosure with a husband and wife when the husband has been um, unfaithful. So they said, this is how you do it. This is the model that they use. First, they have a meeting where the husband does all the talking. So they have three separate meetings. First meeting, the husband does all the talking. He lays out clearly and completely what has happened. There's no... Uh, you know, we'll talk some now and then we'll disclose some more in the next month and we'll talk, I'll, I'll tell you a little more next month. It's like, no, he lays out all of his sins before his wife and he has his support person with him and she has her support person with her and he does all the talking and they close the meeting. Next meeting, she does all the talking and she takes time to formulate her response and 
tell him uh, exactly what his betrayal has done to her and how it feels. <coughs> and uh, he listens. And then finally, in the third meeting, they begin to discuss how they can go about repairing the relationship. The first step to repairing the relationship is to listen, and to listen well. Now think back to the, the responses to conflict that I was talking about earlier. If you, every time someone complains to you, offer a super reasonable response, how long can you think that you're going to Or if every time someone talks to you, you just put all the fault on them and you blame them. Or you uh, placate and say, well, none of this is your fault, or none of this is ever your fault, and you're just a, a poor victim. It's like, no, people actually want to be heard and validated and helped. And if that means figuring out that they're in the wrong place, they're usually okay with that once they feel heard. And Frank Reed talks, uh, talks about this, and I thought this was a good analogy. He, he said, when you're listening well, what you're doing is you, you act like you have a book in front of you, and you just bounce back to them what they just said. There's another form of conflict resolution that I uh, remember reading about, I think it was a number of years ago, to where you have two parties that come together, and the one party talks, and, and somebody has to go first. So the one party says, this is how I feel, what, this, is, this is my perspective on what's been going on. And they don't move on from that until the other person can repeat back, okay, so you're telling me that the way you're feeling is this, this, and this, and this, and this. And they have to repeat back to the other person until that person is satisfied that this other person understands what I'm going through. <coughs> what you're doing is you're causing that person to feel hurt. Whether or not you agree with them, I'm not saying I agree with you. I'm saying I want to understand how you feel. And generally, when people feel, when we feel hurt, we're also listening. Always the case. Sometimes it takes a while to get there. But when we feel heard and valued, we're usually ready to open up. Sharing his image. Relationships begin with you. You in relationship comes from your ability to be truthful and merciful to yourself. Of course, with God's word. Okay, so how I respond to you is a result of what's going on in here. And how I see, uh, how I'm finding myself lining up the scriptures. That comes from how we see God. How we see God is usually shaped by how our parents and Getting down to the root of this, A.W. Tozer, this very popular quote, says that what you think about God, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And he's right. Because, well, how, if, if I cannot respond to you well, it's probably because I'm not doing well. If I'm not doing well, it's probably because I'm not now that's a process, isn't it? And just because you're at a certain stage in your journey doesn't mean you're at a bad place or or that you're somehow at fault for where you're at, necessarily. But it really stems back to how we see God. And how we see God is usually given to us by our communities and our families. Now here's something interesting that uh, someone told me recently that I want to close with. Um, 
our fathers a reflection of God or is God a reflection of our fathers? Think about this. Is God a reflection of our fathers or are our fathers reflections of God? We tend to believe that God is a reflection of our fathers. So you have God the Father. God the Father is everything that a father should be, could be on this earth. He's the perfect father. And if you want to know what he's the perfect father is like, you can read about the scripture. You see the sacrificial love and the lifting up and the redemption and the way that God walked with Israel through their sins and all those things. Now, our earthly fathers tell us about who God is, and they do it in one of two ways. Either they are like God, and they show us who He is by how they act, or they're not like God, and they show us how He's not by how they act. But the ultimate standard is with God, not with our fathers. Now, it's hard for us to separate that sometimes, but if I could, if I could point you anywhere tonight and say God is get a hold of that, we understand that we can come to the place of finding healing from, from the wrong ways that we've been looking at this and from the difficulties that we have in responding well, even within our own selves to the things that we've dealt with in our life and we come to see God as the father of Luke 15 that goes out to find that lost sheep or that hunt 